in John chapter 4, and Jesus does indeed journey through Samaria, where he encounters a Samaritan woman beside a well. And he engages her in conversation, much to her surprise. Jesus requests a drink from the well, to which she responds, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John adds a parenthetical explanation, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. John's explanation clues you in to the reality of ethnic hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. And as the passage moves along, it's apparent that Jesus is not interested in merely quenching his thirst after long miles on the road. He's actually interested in the woman's spiritual condition, and he intends to offer her the waters of eternal life. Jesus' chief agenda is to bring the good news of eternal life to those who are perishing. What the world needs most is salvation from sin. That's why Jesus goes on to confront the woman about her sin of marital infidelity. I begin with this emphasis on Jesus' chief agenda today so that we don't lose sight of what's most important. Jesus came to rescue individuals from their sins. But my purpose today is not to speak directly to the question of how we are saved from sin. Rather, I want to examine one of the many effects of the gospel when it is embraced by sinners. What becomes of that ethnic hostility between Jews and Samaritans when the woman embraces the gospel? The New Testament has a great deal to say about how the gospel reconciles ethnic, racial, tribal, linguistic, and cultural barriers between people. Jesus did not come to planet earth first and foremost as a social justice warrior. He came to preach the gospel of repentance and to make an atonement for our sins. But those sins do indeed include the ugly sin of racism and ethnic prejudice. Jesus did not come merely for the Jews. He came to reconcile Jews and Samaritans in one body, the church. Jesus didn't come merely for blacks in America who for centuries were indeed oppressed by whites. He came to redeem both the oppressed and the oppressor. Jesus didn't come merely for Ukrainians while leaving Russians to their fate. He didn't come for the Jews abandoning the Gentiles to a Christless eternity. Jesus came for humanity. Jesus didn't come as a social justice warrior taking up the cause of orphans while abandoning parents to their misery. Our prayer is, in fact, that our orphan son will meet his biological parents in the new world. And Jesus did not come as a social justice warrior taking up the cause of women while ignoring the problems of men. Jesus came for sinners, and we are all sinners. However, when in fact people embrace the gospel, the gospel does indeed have the power to reconcile ethnic, 
racial, tribal, linguistic, gender, and cultural barriers that divide people. The gospel does indeed promote justice, biblical justice. And just as an aside, let me point out the beauty of gospel reconciliation. Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus in his body, in his incarnation, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Quite literally, Paul says he reconciles us, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's really crucial. The incarnation and the cross destroy racial hostility. However, this is also crucial. Jesus does not intend to destroy cultural, ethnic, and linguistic diversity. He destroys hostility, but not diversity. Acts 15 makes this crystal clear. The Jerusalem Council determined not to impose Jewish culture, laws, Jewish customs on the Gentiles. The Jerusalem Council does not intend to destroy Gentile culture before a Gentile could enter the church. Revelation makes the same point. The individual nations or ethnicities with their various global tongues bring their glory and honor into the kingdom. God's answer to Babel is Pentecost. Not a single language. Pentecost, where the gospel goes out to all the nations and all those tongues come into the new Jerusalem. So again, the gospel destroys hostility, but not diversity. Now that needs a couple whole sermons unto itself that I don't intend to preach at the moment. But all that to say, sometimes I'm afraid that Christians show very little interest in social justice issues like reconciliation between races because we are afraid of what has been called the social gospel, which is indeed problematic. The social gospel tends to ignore people's fundamental need to repent and embrace Jesus as Redeemer, focusing instead on the relevant social issues of the day. The truth is, only when we have indeed embraced the gospel will we be truly equipped to apply the gospel to the pressing issues of the day. The gospel does indeed address social justice issues. The problem occurs when we attempt to solve social justice issues independently of the gospel. That's the problem. So, for example, the gospel does indeed address the problem of racial hostility. The gospel does indeed address the problem of orphans and widows. The gospel addresses antagonisms between men and women, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, children and parents. It's all there. So don't turn your back on social justice issues for fear of losing the gospel. Rather, apply the gospel to the social justice issues of the day. Now, we all know that there is a pressing issue in our world today involving a brutal conflict in Ukraine. Even, if, even though we've reached John chapter 4 and our regular exposition of the Word, I decided in light of the guest speaker that we have coming this evening 
to preach a topical message that's sort of rooted in John 4, but a topical message on the gospel of reconciliation and compassion. Let's actually give today to thinking biblically about the war in Ukraine. I did preach an earlier sermon on the same topic, and I addressed the question of whose side God is on. I'll not return to that today. But as I got thinking about this this week, in light of our guest speaker coming, I thought, you know what, maybe it'd be really helpful to just sort of talk through this with the church. We have a guest speaker coming tonight whose name is Sergei Minka. Sergei is Ukrainian-born. His mother is Russian. His father is Ukrainian. He's fluent in both languages. Sergei passes a church of a majority Ukrainians, but also Russians, Belarusians, and Moldovians. And Sergei actually preaches in the Russian tongue to a majority Ukrainians. When I asked him, well, how does that all work out? He responded with the words of Paul in Colossians 3.11, into the verse, but Christ is all and in all. I don't suppose he could have given a better answer. The fact is, the conflict that we are witnessing in Ukraine today is deeply rooted in European history. A simple ceasefire, which we all hope for, will not solve the problem of hostility between these nations. In fact, the damage has already been done. The problem will be worse for generations to come. The current war is actually a manifestation of a conflict that goes back at least to tensions between the Vikings and the Slavic peoples in the 9th century. Many of them first moved into that area that is now Ukraine. And truth be told, the conflict goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, where hostility erupted between brothers and the first family, and even before that, to Adam and Eve. The term Ukraine means borderlands. The territory occupied by Ukraine today is a contested piece of land. It lacks natural boundaries and has absorbed the blood of combatants for centuries. The last century alone witnessed the death of millions, millions. In the First World War, Ukrainians fought on both sides, imperialist Russia and the Austro-Hungarian army with much loss of blood. A short-lived Ukrainian republic was established in the year 1917, in the month of June, This was, of course, the same year as the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Ukraine was subsequently incorporated partly by Poland and partly by Russia in the Polish-Ukrainian and Polish-Soviet wars. Again, brutal wars over that land. From 1932 to 1933, millions of Ukrainians died in what has become known as the Holodormal. Holodomor, I can't say the word, the Great Famine, all right? I don't speak Ukrainian, all right? The Great Famine. 
The Great Famine actually resulted from Joseph Stalin's disastrous policies, including collectivist farming, which robbed Ukrainians of their crops and sent them to Russia while the Ukrainians starved. In the Second World War, Kiev was occupied temporarily by the Germans and suffered significant damage. Eastern Ukraine was a site of intense fighting between Germany and Russia, the same area that's fiercely contested today. It's estimated some six million Ukrainians are thought to have died in the conflict in the Second World War. That included about 1.5 million Jews. To put that in perspective, there were some six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. You had that many killed in Ukraine in the fighting. Some Ukrainians viewed German Nazis as liberators. Others are pro-Russian. Can you imagine choosing between Hitler and Stalin? Those aren't good options. It's estimated that 700 cities, towns, and villages in Ukraine were destroyed in the Second World War. And after that, a great famine broke out from 1946 to 1947. Many, many people died. Ukraine, you probably know, was also the site of the worst nuclear disaster in modern history, the Chernobyl disaster, April 26, 1986. The borderlands, Ukraine, finally became an independent state for the first time in its history in August of 1991, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, during which time Christians had suffered bitterly. Ukraine's first presidential election occurred December 1st, 1991, but the last 30 years have been full of turmoil, including contested elections, government corruption, and the ever-present threat of Russian invasion and annexation. Vladimir Zelensky is now the sixth president of a very young country, and clearly he faces an existential threat on his own survival. Now, friends, I have just, I've just barely scratched the surface of modern Ukrainian history. But clearly, it is a history that's just full of ethnic and racial hostility and war. And apart from Colossians 3 and verse 11, but Christ is all and in all... I don't see any clear path forward for resolving the conflict even when this war comes to an end. The hostility will still be there. You better believe it. How do I know? This hostility is not going to go away easily. Well, would you actually read the whole verse? Colossians 3 and verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now does anyone know where the Scythians were from? Anyone know? Ukraine before it was called Ukraine. And this is the same place many of the barbarians were from. 
Colossae, to whom Paul wrote, was situated in Anatolia. This is modern Turkey. Anatolia is in northeastern and northeastern region of the Roman Empire. And to the north lay the Black Sea. And surrounding the Black Sea, stretching east all the way over to the Caspian and beyond, lay Scythia. The Scythia of Paul's day included the Crimean Peninsula. Ever heard of it? This is a fiercely contested region in Ukraine. Scythia also included the territory along the Dnieper River, which is where Kiev is now located, or Kiev as they call it today. And Paul references the Scythians and barbarians because they represent the next frontier in the church's missionary efforts to see the world brought to Christ. Beginning in Antioch, Paul moved in a northwesterly direction. We read about this in Acts, we read about it in Romans. Paul moved northwest into Anatolia. And of course, eventually he made his way to Rome and possibly also to Spain. In one generation, the gospel just moved northwest across much of the Roman Empire. And Paul, if you recall, told the Romans in chapter 15 that he had a sense of completion in preaching the gospel on this northwestern arch from Jerusalem all the way over to Illyricum. All right? But beyond that, to the north, lay the wild Scythian lands, barbarous and lawless. Scythians and barbarians were largely nomadic peoples. They were skilled equestrians, expert archers, and fearsome warriors, including also their women, believe it or not. Such was their military prowess, they were often hired as mercenaries. Scythians were known to scalp and behead their enemies, and they would drape those scalps as gruesome war trophies from their horses, from their saddles. To the Romans, the Scythians were uncivilized, uncouth, barbaric. The term barbarian itself was a slur on the unintelligibility of their language. It sounded like bar, 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 bar to the civilized Latin speakers of Rome. And if you can believe it, the hostility between the Romans and the Scythians was even greater than the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Incredible racial, ethnic hostility between these peoples. Nevertheless, Paul claims in verse 11, look at these words. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in and all. These entrenched cultural, ethnic, and linguistic differences are dissolved, Paul says. But what does Paul mean by the term here? Look at that first word of the verse, here. Where is the here? That's crucial to interpreting the passage. Where is the here? Well, back up to verse 1, and let's get the broader context. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I have emphasized often that Christ did not die so that you can live. 
Christ died so that you can die. And he resurrected so that you can live. Don't separate the cross from the empty tomb or you will end up with a distorted gospel that is vastly different than what the apostles preached. Paul claims in verse 3 that we died. And we died with Christ. And clearly Paul also says in verse 1 that we've been raised with Christ. When I put my faith in Christ, my life is just hidden away. It's tucked away with Christ. So that what happened to him happened to me. And just as certainly as I've died with Christ, I've resurrected with Christ. And I will most certainly appear with him in glory. That's the Apostles' Gospel. So clearly, Paul is speaking here of our new identity in Jesus Christ. That's the here. We are in Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and we are glorified with him. That's the here. So then, if we identify with Christ, how do we, in the words of verse 1, seek those things which are above? It doesn't mean we all become monks and go, you know, focus on heaven all day long. What does it mean? How do, we, how do we live out this new identity? And the answer begins in verse 5. Here's the answer. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Notice that emphasis on knowledge as we learn more and more about Christ and his gospel, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul is clearly speaking here of living out this new identity that we have in Christ by killing off the old self. And here's a crucial point as we think about the gospel and social justice. Paul is not speaking of an us versus them scenario. He's not speaking of the oppressed and the oppressor. Although that is a problem, but that's not what he's speaking of here. Rather, he is speaking of a me versus me scenario. That's the issue. It's me versus me. It's the same truth that we've discovered numerous times in Romans 7 concerning our flesh. The flesh is that irredeemable part of you. It's the old, selfish, violent, intolerant, sensual self that just doesn't get reformed. It has to be killed. That's why Paul says, verse 5, put to death. You're not going to improve it. You've got to kill it. Kill it dead. Put to death what is earthly in you. So my primary problem, all right, is not me versus my neighbor. My primary problem is me That's what Paul is speaking of. Now, don't misunderstand. I do want to see justice in our world. I lament our country's history of racial strife, slavery, Native American genocide. 
I hate to see hostilities in our world today between Japanese and Chinese, between Ukrainians and Russians, between Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, between Muslim Shiites and Sunnis. It's a terrible thing. But these conflicts are as old as the world. Adam and Eve had no sinner's sin, and there was immediate hostility between them. The hostility between men and women goes back to the very beginning. And in the second generation, that conflict erupted when Cain murdered his brother. And that's the origin of all wars ever since. The fact is, we are never going to get all this solved. No matter how hard we try, unless we begin here, the problem isn't everyone else. The problem is me. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, friends, when you kill off the old self and begin living out your new identity in Christ, then verse 10 becomes reality and have put on the new self. You've got to kill off the old self, right? And now what happens? You put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And who is the creator? Jesus Christ. John chapter 1. Romans 8 tells us we are being restored into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our new self. So again, the new identity explains the word here in verse 11. Here is the new self remade in Christ. So let's read verse 11 that way. Here in Christ, right, in this new self in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Friends, that is the biblical solution for lasting social justice until our world is recreated in the image and likeness of Christ, we will never see permanent, lasting justice. It's not going to happen apart from Christ's gospel. Now, the Bible is not opposed to social justice at all. The Bible recognizes that there is no true and lasting justice, however, apart from Christ's gospel. And once you're aware of this, you start noticing how the gospel reconciles relationships just all over the place. So let's actually turn back now to John chapter 4, and let's engage in a little survey of just a few texts, some of which we've looked at before, and then we'll come back to Colossians 3. And let me just show you some examples of how relationships are reconciled. In John chapter 4, while Jesus converses with the woman at the well, the disciples go into Sychar to buy food. Would you notice how the disciples respond when they return with the food? Verse 27, just then, he'd been talking with the woman, his disciples came back, and notice their response. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? These disciples are consumed with ethnic pride. How dare their Messiah talk to a Samaritan woman? And the woman at this point goes into town to tell the others about the Messiah. And the disciples, thinking they have done their Messiah just a great favor, by purchasing food for him, they offer him something to eat. And he refuses it. 
Now, in Middle Eastern culture, sharing food is a mark of genuine friendship. To refuse food in the minds of many Middle Easterners is just reprehensible. It's like calling somebody your enemy. What Jesus is doing, though, is exposing an enormous, an enormous problem in their thinking. They believe that feeding Jesus is sufficient while they ignore his more important mission of reaching out to needy people right across ethnic barriers. The disciples are consumed with meeting the needs of the master while ignoring the mission of the master. They come to focus on the minutia, a single meal, which is important, but they focus on the minutia while ignoring the bigger mission. And if I can just pause for just a moment, let me just point out that this can happen in churches. We can really focus on the minutia. We'll get the music and sound just right, get the lighting just right, reprint the whole bulletin if you find a typo, start exactly on time, do everything decently and in order for the sake of the Messiah. Okay, I'm okay with that. But the fact is, if you ignore the lost person, the poor person, the person from another culture, Jesus really has no time for all that minutia. He cares about the lost person who comes in. In this Samaritan context, Jesus then speaks perhaps the most famous words in all missions history. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Those were Samaritan fields. And the disciples are too blinded by ethnic pride and minutiae to really see that there's needs all around them. Now, thankfully, Jesus' message was apparently caught by the disciples. And we'll see that if we turn to Acts chapter 8 now. In Acts chapter 8, we observe the gospel reaching right across three ethnic barriers. And these barriers are overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think I referenced these just a few weeks ago without actually turning to Acts 8. But let's just look at a few passages really quickly here. Let me just show you this. We are turning now to the post-Pentecost world where the Spirit has descended with power. But this world is also haunted by Saul, the persecutor who is ravaging the church. And ironically, Saul's persecution rooted in racial bigotry only grows the church. Notice what his persecution ends up doing, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered, that is, they were scattered by Saul's persecution, what happened? They went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. That's right down to those fields that were widened the harvest. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Saul's persecution, while attempting to maintain the integrity of Judaism, sends the good news of the Jewish Messiah right into the heart of Samaritan culture. It really is quite beautiful. Then almost immediately, Philip left this productive ministry, and he moves south, where he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And in verse 29, we read, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And we know the aftermath. He ends up leading this person to Christ, this Ethiopian. 
And from there, the Holy Spirit moved Philip again to the Philistine town of Azotus, verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. What became of Philip? Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Acts 8 is just really, really ironic, is it not? It begins with the persecution sparked by the racial bigot Saul of Tarsus. But that persecution sends the gospel burning not through one, not through two, but through three racial barriers by the end of the chapter, Samaria, Ethiopia, and Azotus. Now, apparently, Peter and some of the other apostles don't initially understand what's really happening here. So it leads us to Acts 10, where we have the whole incident with Cornelius. And it becomes clear to Peter, at least partially clear, that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. We'll not turn there now. But let's skip over chapter 10 now and go to chapter 11. Go to chapter 11. All right, and in chapter 11, what Luke, the author, does is he suddenly shifts our attention away from Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of the church early in the book of Acts, to Antioch. Antioch will soon become the new epicenter of Christianity, and that's because God knows that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And curiously, the Antiochian church was founded by believers whom Saul had persecuted. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, what persecution is that? That, That's Saul's persecution, right? They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. These Jews scattered from Jerusalem after Pentecost and they preached the gospel. This was all very good, but they focused exclusively on the Jews. However, this exclusive Jewish focus begins to change at Antioch. And you should be grateful if you're not a Jew. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now the word Hellenist is a word for the Greeks. For the Gentiles. And Luke alerts us to the fact that in Antioch, the ethnic character of the church is about to change. In verse 21, a good many of these Greeks believed, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the following verses tell us the Jerusalem church really is pleased by this new development. But observe something critically important. Up to this point, the church has gone by various names. Christians were simply called brothers or people of the way. In the eyes of most Romans, Christianity was a sectarian movement within Judaism. But what do you call yourselves in Antioch when your church suddenly overcomes racial barriers that divided Jews and Gentiles, and they are brought together in one body, in one church, in Christ. Well, what do you call yourselves? Well, look at the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Well, can there be a better name? We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. The term Christian and its derivative, Christianity, dates from this incident. From this incident where the church decisively just shattered those ethnic barriers and brought Jews and Gentiles deliberately together in a single body. What do you call yourselves? Christians! Christ unites us in one body. And again, that is the foundation for a Christian view of social justice. The gospel unites us, Ukrainians and Russians. Native Americans and Europeans, blacks and whites, Chinese and Japanese, here, here in Christ Jesus, we are Christians. From the first use of the term Christians, we are supposed to think of a faith that is for all believers, regardless of their cultural, language, or ethnic differences. The New Testament solution for strife in our world is indeed to unite all people in one body in Christ. The fact is, multiculturalism is and ought to be normal in the church. The term Christianity emerged when people from various backgrounds embraced a common Savior. Now, this is not the first time or even the second time that I have referenced Acts 11 and verse 26. Some of you are thinking, he said this before. We've heard him say this before. That is true. All right? So that is a reminder of some things that I've said before. However, I don't believe that I've ever pointed us to what follows. What follows is a genuine test of this new Christian identity of Jews and Gentiles in one body. Look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. That's the known Roman world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now we have several records, including these verses, which tell of food shortages and famines in the first century. And we know from Josephus that Judea and Jerusalem were especially hard hit. Our text implies as much. The Jerusalem church was indeed in dire straits. Jesus himself predicted in Matthew 24 that days of severe famine would come upon Jerusalem. Jesus also spoke of wars and rumors of war, all of which happened before 70 AD. In fact, Josephus tells us of severe famine in Judea and Jerusalem. It ravaged the land during the Jerusalem wars in the 60s, the Jewish wars in the 60s. And the truth is that war and famine really go hand in hand. When you have one, you have the other. And that really, friends, is the history of Ukraine, war and famine. And of course, Christians living in Judea and Christians living in Ukraine are not immune to the wars and the famines that engulf their lands. So what really is the Christian response? If we are united as one people, one family in Christ, we are all Christians, how do we respond to brothers and sisters in distress? 
Well, clearly, verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They sent an offering to aid the brothers. And this didn't happen just once because these wars and these famines continued all the way up until 70 AD. Remember Romans 15? Paul later on collected another offering from the Gentiles during his third missionary journey. And he brought all that resource down to Jerusalem and he prayed that the Romans would pray with him that this would be well received by the Jews. This had to have been a very humbling thing for Jewish Christians. For centuries, they viewed themselves and their temple as the religious center of the world. And now suddenly, these destitute Jews are dependent on Gentile beneficence. But for all we knew, all we know that they did indeed accept the offering. So friends, with all this historical context and precedent established, let's turn back to Colossians chapter 3. And I want to make just a single application a single application. And I want to be really, really clear. I'm calling this an application, not an appeal. Okay? To the best of my knowledge, I have never appealed to our congregation for money. That's never been my practice. I have attempted merely to make needs known as I've become aware of them. For example, when Ben and Barry and Bert learned of the opportunities with the Turners to put up these church buildings for India, Indians in Costa Rica, we, we, just, we just came to the church and we laid out the need and we said, if you'd like to give, here's an opportunity. I didn't set a mark. I didn't beat you over the head with this. I just said, here's an opportunity if you'd like to give. And people actually gave about three times what I was expecting, actually. But I actually told you, if you recall, reasons you shouldn't give. If you're in debt and you have a bad testimony, you shouldn't give. You should pay off your debts. If you're going to give and regret it, you can't do it with a grateful heart, don't do it. You're throwing your money away. I don't mean that the Lord can't use that money, but as far as, it's not working toward your sanctification if you're giving with regret. If you can't agree with your spouse over giving, don't give. I actually gave you reasons not to give, and I did the same thing when it came to paying off the mortgage on our building over here. If you recall, I said, these are reasons you shouldn't give, all right? And I'm not trying to use reverse psychology. It's not at all what I'm doing, all right? I just don't like high-pressure tactics at all, especially when it comes to money, because it really has to flow out of your own heart, not out of my own manipulation, right? That, that really is my philosophy. It's been my, my philosophy since day one. So really, what I'm trying to do here is not to cajole or pressure anyone into appealing to you to give. I'm simply just trying to do due diligence to the Word of God as we've become aware of a need in Ukraine. So in that context, let me just explain this. Part of the reason that I asked Sergei Minka to come this evening is because people in our church actually express interest to me in finding ways to help some Ukrainian believers. They said, is there any way that we can get involved in this? Anything you know that we can do? All right, Ted Whitwell in particular, one of our elders, Wanted to know, is there a way that we can get involved and help? And uh, Steve Pettit uh, also had a burden for this and uh, made the need known to students at Bob Jones and uh, told them about Sergey Minka and his ministry. And I've known Sergey for a long time, although I haven't spoken with him in years. And I thought, you know what, this would be a good opportunity for us as well to, to get involved. And I thought, okay, this, maybe, maybe this is the Lord's answer for us. All right, so after searching the scriptures... 
and then just really trying to look at the situation in Ukraine. And I spent some time over spring break actually reading about Ukraine. It did seem to me that there are some parallels between the situation in Ukraine and what believers are facing there, many of them now in exile, all right? Some parallels between them and the Jerusalem believers in the midst of famine. And, and Sergei is really the only person that I know that has any connection with the churches over there. So I thought, let's just go ahead and invite him to come, and he can just talk to you, and you can, you can make up your mind. All right, so again, I'm not pressuring you, but I do know that as Christians, in Acts 11, we are united as Jews and Gentiles in one body. And I know that as Christians, Ukrainians and Americans, we are united in one body. So it just seemed reasonable to do the very same thing the Gentiles did back in Acts 11. If we want to take up an offering and send it to believers in Ukraine, that seems to be a reasonable application of our passage. And again, look at Colossians 3 and verse 11. Here's what Paul insists. Here, where's the here? In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Ukrainian, Slave free, but Christ is all in and all. Okay, if that's the truth, then look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. Okay, that's the application. If you're one in Christ, just put on the new man, and what that looks like in this case is compassion and kindness. Okay, so our elders have approved to take up an offering, and if you would just like to put anything on the check that says Ukraine or something like that, we'll keep it open for a few weeks, but come out tonight and hear Brother Sergey speak, and you can make up your own mind and see if you'd like to do that. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have to bring aid and bring relief to brothers and sisters that are suffering And Lord, would you just lift up Ukrainian believers, Lord, who may soon return to their homes, to their church buildings, and find them destroyed. Uh, Lord, many, many orphans will come of this conflict. Lord, we, we pray for children that are even now separated from their parents, Lord, that they would be able to find their parents again. Father, the the situation there is very, very dire. We just pray, Lord, that you would bring justice to Ukraine. And Lord, that you would bring long-term justice between Ukraine and Russia as people embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.